Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of James Fry, brother of Martin from ABC, one-time member of Earl Brutus and also the world of Twist and various other musical as well as creative projects, especially in the world of photography that you'll find out about. But at the latter half of 2022, Public well, wrote a book titled A Licence to Rock and Pop. Uh, an inventory of attitude. So there you go. So you're going to find out more about this publication, which is um, a fascinating book. So there is going to be a link below so you can have a look at it. But do check it out and buy a copy. Also, just to say, James is going to be doing a show on Fridays with um, Boogaloo Radio. So there you go. But anyway, look, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening. Anyway, James, it's over to you. Musical awakening. Well, funny you say that. I bought, um, the first proper record I bought was, um, and it sounds very cool, this, Virginia Plain by Roxy Music. Um, and as you just pointed out, B-sides were essential. You listened to the B-side. And the B-side of that was, uh, oh, I've got the numberer. Right. I think Brian Ferry let different members of the band record the B-side so they got the publishing. Like So the B-sides for Roxy singles were always quite interesting. There was one called Your Applications Failed, one called Hula Kula. But the number is a, a track worthy of playing right now, and it's still you know worth listening. So Awakening, yes. Um, Top of the Pops was staple diet in our house. Thursday night was essential. Um, older brother, who became... Martin out of ABC mm-hmm. went on, um, but in those days uh, he was a sixth former. So yeah, first record was that um, Alex Cooper on top of the pops was probably my awakening. You know, once I saw that, it was game over. You know, was, I love the riff, which obviously was stolen for all <laughs> <for> Brutus, <laughs> and and, um, and I loved um, Alex Cooper the visual again, and the idea it, it was kind of trouble, but in a kind of cartoon kind of way it was designed yeah. i think that i'm 61 so i was born in and i was born in 61 i'll be 62 in june so i didn't have we didn't have any of the shit of the second world war did we we didn't have any fallout the 70s was the beginning and, and my my i guess i was aware of ziggy and there was a shop in stockport that used to press up I think it must have been bootlegs of Bowie albums. So we kind of backtracked from Bowie. But my in for Bowie was um, Diamond Dogs. I went and bought it. I cycled into the village and got it from the local record shop the day it came out. Um, and that was my that was my in on Bowie. And after everything else prior to that, I went, I dug into and discovered like Aladdin Sane and Ziggy, and then Man Who Sold the World and so he was he was probably on what album six by the time I got involved. Yeah. I was too young for Ziggy, which is a shame. Um, and the first time I saw Bowie was seventy six, so I was fifteen, and I went Thin White Duke tour at Wembley Arena. Went down on the National Express with my brother, and we saw that. And it, you know, he was going to be assassinated for being a fascist. He'd made the comment about Victoria Station the day before, and he was going to so that. But so that was my revelation. The other one, first live band religiously we'd go into Manchester, usually the Free Trade Hall or the Palace. And this is how I got to know Gordon. And we went to see bands, and the first band I ever saw was Sparks. 
Um, I'd, it was the propaganda tour. So Kimono My House had been out. And that was a complete and utter revelation because obviously you watch these things on top of the pops and you thought these people lived on top of the pops. When we were 14 years old and we sat quite close to the front but the side near the PA and Ron Mail came on. Ron Mail was just in front of you. And it was weird. It was like he actually existed instead of being a figment of your, you know, cartoon figure. And of course he is a cartoon figure in a minute. And he was just there doing his kind of like, and it was just, it was unbelievable that he actually existed yes. as a human being in human form. And after that, I was sold. Steve Harley, The Who, what <laughs> saw some crap as well. <laughs> Intensity, <laughs> Tangerine Dream. Tangerine Dream, my well, God. We go and see anything really. We went and saw Leonard Skinner. Gordon got me a ticket to see Leonard Skinner. But we always just went to gigs because it was what we did. And I was a lightweight um, football fan. I would go to, Old Trafford and a, a, our group of people, our group would all hang out in this, what they call the Stretford Paddock. And I do remember it getting a bit violent. <laughs> and I'm a suburban Barrett House boy. And I didn't really like the, the hostility of football. I wasn't built for it. So football, uh, the music came at quite a good time as well because it kind of, I thought I'd spend my money on that. Yes. Well, do, so you were there in the Tommy Doherty phase of his kind of, yeah. you know. Second division, Lou Macari, first ever game. And when the, when you, yeah, when United were in the second division. And, uh, but I mean, I wasn't serious. I mean, it was just, it was just what people did, what we did. You know, we went to town, we went to a game and then we just, kept, we didn't drink, you know, because we were too young. Um, but then the money got spent on music, really. Yes, absolutely. So, were your parents at all musical? Did they have any kind of musical influence in the in the? No, there, were, there, weren't, there wasn't. There weren't, weren't instruments lying around the house or everything. Um, Mum and Dad had a record collection, and and of course you you associate Barrett, Barrett House. I mean, I really when I look back, they had things like Joan Armour Trading and the Carpenters, and um, Love at the Greek by Neil Diamond, and that kind of stuff that mums and dads listen to, but. But of course, what you realise later is that my mum and dad were in the big into the big band sound, and they were and they were into their jazz as well. And there's a lot of quite interesting jazz records lying around. Um, and uh, and I've revisited a year ago. My dad died; he'd been very ill, and it wasn't like some terrible shock, but he, it was his time to go. It was a year ago this week, and then I started digging out jazz records recently, and they connect, there's a connection. With my parents, they like, but they like, no, no, they weren't musical. They weren't people. My mum was a typist and my dad was a salesman. And, um, but they liked music, you know, they liked. I remember my uncle Harry having an eight track cartridge of, of uh, Shirley Bassey playing <laughs> it in his car. <laughs> you know? And then, mo and then the music was always around. My cousin had a nightclub and we'd go there for a meal now and then or go and visit him. And I distinctly remember hearing Bernadette, my four tops, playing. It wasn't, we weren't there loud at the night. We were there at night. No. And we've got a lot of older cousins and, and there was, Motown was everywhere. Um, uh, you know, the kind, and those, and it wasn't, you didn't buy, I don't remember us ever having a four tops album or a Temptations album, but we had those Motown one to four with the silver steel, the beautifully designed silvery covers. Yeah, classic. So, so that, that's how we, that's how we absorb Motown through those compilation albums. Yeah. So, the, yeah, music was always – my dad thought that Silver Machine was called Sewing Machine. I remember <laughs> that. I mean, they weren't unmusical or anti-music. It wasn't some horrible Pres Presbyterian upbringing. It's yeah. just it was, 
I think a bit like art. It wasn't really considered important, but it was it was in the, it was all around, and you know it wasn't it wasn't like you know it's just stuff. It's the stuff of every day. But top of the pops, and then the all go whistle test would always be on. And oh, you know that was a kind of religious thing. Yes. To watch. Um, and the chat and the charts on a Sunday evening. Yeah, you the know, charts the, on a Sunday. The, 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 the the it used to be a Tuesday at lunchtime at school. We'd listen right. to the charts in the classroom, and then. But then it became Sundays, yeah, the a bit later on, about three or four years later. So yeah, that that was a kind of, and and Gary Glitter on top of the pops and Alice Cooper and Adam, and then it would be think people like Adam Ant, and so it was in the you know yeah music was there, and of course you do have an older brother who, um, my brother was quite a, he was always kind of very grown up even when he was young, but he so he he he, he kind of looked at me he, the way he talked about music was almost like it was something he, he was. Um, he was studying. No, maybe not. But you know, he, he, he would unpack music very quick. It was very natural to unravel it. Go, right. what, does that mean? what did Bowie mean when he said that? And what did Brian Ferry mean? So I think that in, I don't. I wouldn't say I'm not saying he's an academic in music, but but he was he, he was intrigued by it, and, and I caught that from him. Um, and and it was just I didn't think for a minute any of us would ever become band, band members or or. And but it was an exciting time, as as I mentioned in the book. Have you? I don't know if you've been able to read the book, but yes, the, the bit where you watch telly, watching Top of the Pops, and and then years later on the same sofa and the same channel, my brother arrives on it. So it's quite profound. It, that part of it was very exciting. I didn't for a second imagine that it'd be still going on now, especially with the same songs. And the, the, I'd never really bought into the revival um, part of the, those artists, though all those artists. You know, the, the, I think their work was done long ago and they did a really good job of it. Yes, 40 a years. Those, well, a lot of those people, I don't, I don't, I don't really care about them now. <laughs> no, no, I like, you know, everyone's got their own. But you know what I mean? I can't see, I can't see the point in that kind of stuff now, really. Yes. Says the man who's just seen Peter Hook uh, and, <laughs> and uh, the undertones at, at Rockaway Beach. <laughs> so when you got to sort of like 16, 18 did you leave school at that stage because this is the late 70s or were you staying on for sixth form and art college no, or anything like that most again myself and gordon took the same route but i was one year ahead of him uh, i went to tech college stockport college but it was 77 it was 1976 1977 so it was just a, i mean there was what three four million people unemployed i won gcse in photography and um, I love photography. I got taught photography at school, a comprehensive school. And this, and that was the one thing that the penny dropped. And then I went to graphic design college and I spent a year there and then got a job in a printer's. Um, but of course it was the age of the fanzine. It was, and probably the most important thing, it was the age of the Buzzcocks, of Buzzcocks. Buzzcocks were our band. We, you know, just adored them every, every second and every corner of their pop music. And they were a Manchester band. We were in Stockport and, and Buzzcocks were a defining moment for me, you know. Yes, no, absolutely. No, so it was a great time to leave school. You were told you'd get nothing. My careers office, my careers meeting was not unlike the one in Kes, but without the pit. You know, <laughs> you know, okay, then what do you want to do? Right, okay, well, you know, if you work hard, you might get a job at Allied Carpets. Next, and then you just moved out, and that's your future. And um, I'm, I'm not making out as hard done by, we were all treated exactly the same. But we all, of course, had this kind of swagger about us because we knew we liked music. It was how we carried ourselves and how we kind of how we define ourselves. So I can't ever remember lying around worrying about my future. 
it was just going to be taken care of. Yes. Record, if you bought enough records or went to enough gigs, something will happen. And that kind of, and that's kind of true. You know, I didn't. Um, and then of course your friends go off to university. A lot of people I knew went to uni and you're just in a dead end really in a suburb and Cheshire suburb, you know, Yes. A bit boring for a while, you know. It must have been very, but yes, because because I mean the early eighties, you know, obviously seventy nine Thatcher gets in, then we have the Falkland War, minus you know minus crisis, and then we have Greenham Common, so we all think we're going to die of a what? nuclear war. So I mean, that, what, that, what, my what, first vote when I was eighteen and the first opportunity to vote, and I voted Labour, uh, was the year that Thatcher got in. Michael uh, Foot. Yeah, so I was stuck. I vote for my. I still like Michael Foot. I think he was good, and I yes. don't, he's not a designer politician, is he? He's, he's not. You know, he wasn't. He's not got the looks or the car, but you know the guy was right. He was he, he was very right. He was right about so many different things. But um, he but then that happened, yeah. But then after that, I went a bit. I got a bit bored because I was just working in a job, and I went to Amsterdam for, to to see. I ended up staying with Mike Pickering, who I knew from school, my brother in school, and um, and I went to Rotterdam and Amsterdam, and I had this idea I was going to wear a beret and become a DJ in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, it, I just spent my money, got drunk, and then came home again. And then I went to, that's when I went to Northampton to say to Gordon, I want to be in your band. And he said, I'm leaving Northampton. I've had enough. And he wanted to go to London. And I said, let's go to Sheffield. And my brother had started giving, bringing cassettes back of bands called Cabaret, Cabaret Voltaire, Proc DVA, and, and the early Human League, you know, the path of the first Human League. And we were obsessed. Me and Gordon, we we were just obsessed with it. I was obsessed with Clock DVA, and we moved to Sheffield for that reason. And it came good because I ended up working for Clock DVA and take you know, being their lights and becoming their their photographer for a bit. That's fantastic because I think I did an interview with him like two. Well, no, it might be before Christmas. Yes, oh, with Addy, yeah, yeah, he's a lovely guy. Amazing. Uh, uh, they were a huge influence on me and Gordon. I think Gordon was obsessed with the early league. I was obsessed with DVA. And we went to Sheffield. Uh, and almost simultaneously, um, my brother would have been at uni there. And so we, we slept on his floor for a bit. And then we knew a few people from Sheffield. But it was kind of just an experiment, really. Just let's go there and do some form of band. So we went out there, and we, it was just silly, really. I mean, it, it was just—it was a very unsensible. It was just an illogical thing to do, which I'm really pleased. All the sort, of, like often, some of the best things are. And of course, we lived, we acted like students, really. We lived like students, but we didn't bother with the degree bit. And um, but we, the background in Sheffield at the time was just alarming, you know. Almost simultaneously, I never really saw my brother up there because he was in London, off making records and, and then having hits and. But, of course, the landscape was just fantastic, you know, and then we got the league morphed into the modern-day human league. Cabaret Voltaire um, and DVA, I went and ended up going to New York with Clock DVA in Berlin when the war was up and things like that with them. Yes, absolutely, because Cherry Red Records brought out that four-CD box set, didn't they, a few years ago? Which... Yeah, I know they've done something recently. And, that's... and DVA had morphed twice probably then. Yes, early so, version to so the first version, and then they reformed. And of course, by by default, DVA needed a um, a drummer. So this bloke called Nick Sanderson turns up, and he needed somewhere to stay. So we were all in this shared house, and he came and lived with us. And Nick became the you know the most one of the most important people you ever met. You know, I mean, 
So then you had Tony Ogden, Gordon King, Nick Sanderson and myself and we were this little gang full of ideas and non-stop tears of laughter on the mm-hmm. dole with nothing else to do but but talk about music. And, and, uh, and Nick went and joined DVA and then I went and worked with them and we just pulled a, pulled together a group out of nowhere, really. It was quite funny. You know? Yeah. And because cause the 80s, because I was a bit of an indie kid, just a bit, you know, I mean, 83 to 87 were the years of the Smiths. And there was a kind of a golden period. And if you remember, and you probably definitely do, there was the kind of mainstream charts with that Trevor Horn production sound and that top of the pops vibe that we had. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Yeah. AB, ABC, Duran Duran, you know, you know, Tina Turner, that kind of sound. Well, and shiny pop, yeah. Shiny pop, wasn't it? Which one, when you're sort of unemployed or poor, you know, you can't relate to, whereas, you know, seeing the Smiths or the June Brides. Yeah, well, you see, I, I remember that being the case, but there were, in the times of recession, people fantasise more, I think, and get a more glamorous kind of outlook, all that being a kind of imaginary one. And I do think that, and I think that Shepherd was a great example of that because you would have this club called Pennies, it was Wednesday night, and you probably got in cheaper if it, with a doll card or free with a doll card. The lead mill was like that. You could get in pretty much anywhere for free with a doll card. And, uh, and the limit was a good club. But, but Pennies was the one on Wednesday where everybody dressed up and you had all these coach loads of people from Leeds coming over from Leeds Warehouse, like Soft Cell included, and, and, the, and then Nottingham Blue Note. And they would all for Wednesday night was everybody who was dressed up and... You know, they're putting on Grace Jones records and um, Pull Up to the Bumper by Grace Jones and Galaxy by War. And um, really, you know, and then obviously the, the you know, like uh, Sound of the Crowd by the League and there would be other uh, Penthouse and Pavement, all that sort of stuff. And it would just be very glamorous and everyone dressed up on a Wednesday night and went out and put, you know, we would all put our eyeliner on and go out. I know, hard to believe now, but like, <laughs> but, you know, but we'd have, a, and it was a very, you know, set lots of secondhand clothes, big overcoats. And it was a wonderful time and it was very glamorous. That's the thing. And the new romantic thing I never really got. I don't, you know, I wasn't that, wasn't that impressed with the London thing, the Blitz thing, and the don't like the Spanish Ballet and that. I think that kind of substandard Roxy. Um, but I think that, but the, but the but the way people behave was really good, was really exciting. It was like Berlin. It was like some out of Berlin in the nineteen thirties in Sheffield on a on a Wednesday night. It was a very exciting place, you know, very yeah. liberating. So the, how did how did the world of Twist then begin? When did you decide to say this is it? Let's start the band. We always wanted a band. There's always going to be a band, and we went on. We but we're incredibly lazy, and and this is and this is now. In hindsight, I, I, I'm really kind of proud of the fact that we're not very industry, <laughs> but we never really took it seriously in terms of we just thought saw it as an ability to maybe wind people up and to get um, and to and to live out a kind of trash world. Really, um, that would be. Uh, but well, but the, um, all that was yeah. We wanted a band and we wanted it to be good, but we wanted to be able to push the self destruct button at any point, as Gordon talks about in his book and. Um, so we yeah we we got we rehearsed and rehearsed and we got a few songs together. It took took a while. Tony never really committed to living in Sheffield, so that made it a little tricky because he couldn't. Um, and uh, I couldn't play anything. Gordon did did a bit. And we got a sax player, Rory, and we just you know we built up. And then we got off. Of, then we realised there's a star rock and pop contest, so we applied for it for a joke really, and we got on. And then we went and won our heat at the top rank. And it was emba- it was embarrassing, and it was also brilliant. <laughs> after that, then we got a few gigs together. Really, we did a little bit of recording, um, 
Stuart Borman and and the guy called Charlie Chester, Andrew Chester, they funded a record for us. Um, but we never really it, things move very slowly, and I couldn't. I, I personally got quite bored of it quite quick. Not but not bored of the band, but bored of the gaps between the band. And uh, there's a sort of sense of urgency in my blood in my at the time. So I. Gordon, we're kind of self-destructive. We're all, all good friends. Don't worry about. There's no the friendship is never um, going to be squandered. But the um, and I wanted. I moved to London and became a photographer, which is probably the best thing I did. And then World of Twist regrouped in Manchester after the Roses and the Mondays and things. Manchester is a very furtive and exciting place again, as it had been when we were young. You know, during the punk years, it just seemed to be alive again and, and vibrant and full of good bands and great venues and things to do. And they their band took off on that there again. But then again, I was their photographer and, and lighting guy. Yes. They needed lights, you know, they were quite a visual setup. Yeah, so never, so I, I felt as much as a part of that band as they ever did in the one that I was the singer in, you know. Yes, because kind of then, you know, like the Smiths break up, which is tragic. And then... Oh, terrible. No, the Smiths were just the greatest thing that ever happened, wasn't it? And they, they kind of... Again, I, I, don't, I hate to boast, but my mum's from Salford. <laughs> she, she, when she was young, she, when she was young, she knew Albert Finney's older sister, and Albert Finney was his four-year-old boy. My mum's ninety-two next week, and she knew, uh, and she also knew Sheila Delaney, who was an usherette at the local cinema. Right, and of it course, so when, these, when these things filter through, you know, Charlie Bubbles and. Uh, my mum knew Albert Finney's shop, the, where the uncle is called Albert Finney. It's a bookies, and it's in Whit Lane in Salford, down sort of down sort of Pendleton way. And it, and the Smiths had their photos there. And of course, my dad's from Wally Range, so you know, and it, he was from Wally Range. Sort of Charlton Cum Hardy, Wally Range. My mum's so with, by default, I've got the most Smiths credentials. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> in, you know, my birthright was to be a Smiths fan, and I I got the Smiths because I think. Because the way they, the things they talked about, the, the the growing up in Manchester, they were at the same gigs that we were at. They were at the Pistols at the in Anarchy tour. They were at the Buzzcocks gigs. They were at Rafters. They bounced, but they were at the Patty Smith gigs. Um, you know, they were just in. We were all in the same audience, so I get them. You know, I love the Smiths. I think that Johnny Marr made indie music sound like Motown. Yes, the chord structures and the and the it reminds me of Motown more than any other band. And Morrissey is, and still is, one of the great and most important song lyricists in this country. You know, he, and he rattles people like Bob Dylan does. And like, um, and he says things that other people don't want to hear, but, but that doesn't stop him being a great lyricist. You know? Yes. Well, we, we we've, all, we've all had to sort of navigate that one quite interestingly, haven't we? Well, you wouldn't silence, you wouldn't silence George Orwell or... Um, uh, Charles Dickens for saying the world was a pile of shit, would you? You know, no, no. It's just that if Morrissey said that, we would probably, you know, be nodding in agreement. It's probably some of the other things. Yeah. It's it's kind of it's his work. It's, I don't I don't I don't think there's any artist that I agree entirely with. No, uh, but it doesn't stop me liking them. There, I like that. I'd like to think I see the wider picture, the body of work that that Mara Morrissey and them they've both done as a, as the Smiths and then gone off and done themselves is is highly you know you can't mess with that shit it's they're very very um 
I'm glad they exist. You know, I'm glad they made they bothered to go in a recording studio. Yeah, the same, but the Smiths meant so much, didn't they? They meant so much. They're not just a band. It's not just guitar, bass, drums, and a vocalist. It was something much that classic, something bigger than the sum of its parts. And to be, so I was living in Sheffield and then London when the Smiths really hit home. Um, but when they, but they meant so much. And it's like talking about family and Manchester and growing up, my parents, and it's got a kind of country and western sort of feel to it to me. You know, some sort of hereditary rights connected to it to me when they took the stuff they're talking about, you know. Yeah, um, well, but absolutely. And I, I guess it's it's interesting what you say, that you know that all the, the parts are greater than, the sum yeah. is greater than the parts, because I, I I sort of, I still don't find Johnny's voice singing-wise that doesn't have that. No, I, no I, know, I know what you mean, but I, th- I think he, he he did some good, he went with Joy Another Other, didn't he, for a bit, and like, um, Modest mouse, but no. But what I mean is, they have they should be able to do what they want. They, you know, they they've certainly delivered. They haven't let the side down for me. They delivered an incredible amount of work. Yes, no. They, yeah. their, their their five year narrative is one of those classic. See, I'd, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have that than than this kind of recycled stuff. This kind of um, these eighties tours. Not naming any names, but I mean, at least they're making new records and writing new words. They're not just turning out real around the fountain and how soon is now every time, you know, and just going on these tours. It's, it would be very disappointing, disrespectful to their fans. Johnny, Johnny Marr said a great thing. Sorry, I'm, I, I regret. He said, people always said, when you get Judas Smith, will have a reform, do you think? And he just said, <laughs> he, he said, well, I'm a Velvet Underground fan and I love the Velvet Underground. And when they reformed, it just ruined everything. Do you remember when the Velvet Underground went on Glaston, went at Glastonbury? It was like kind yes. of shiny, shiny boots of leather. And people were just horrified. It was just like, what? This is, you know, this this historically, uh, maybe the Vel- maybe Velvet Underground is better off in the confines of, of memory and, and history. You know, I, haven't, I picked another book up yesterday and it's all about the Velvet Underground. And you know, maybe it's maybe it's better. Maybe the Smiths should never reform because we don't need need them. We got, we know what they are and what they were, and we've got the we've got the songs, and we've got the, the you know, Morrissey opened with "How Soon Is Now" at the um, last time when I saw him at Brixton a few weeks ago, and it, that's enough. You don't need the Smiths to reform. No, it would be. I think actually, I was at that Glastonbury, and um, and I did sort of wander past and think, yeah. oh, that's the Velvet Underground, but it was just like, I was you know, it it was just was a bit. It was. Um, it wasn't kind of like, oh, I must stay. It was just like, oh, actually. It's, well, it's like, what if I, I mean, for a whole generation of people, Oasis have that kind of that click, that cloud. What if Oasis reform and they took? They're like, I don't know. They're like the Beach Boys without Brian Wilson or something. Like, you know, they they just look. What if you know? What if they just turn up and they just better left, better left in the. They did a great job. They they did good work. Don't yes. unravel it. Don't, don't, don't unravel it by you know like because you did some you did work that other people just will will be with them forever you know yes so how did you I mean then you know that little period well little period but then we had the ecstasy period then we dance scene then we had the Seattle grunge scene and then sort of the early nineties you you then sort of form another band so what was that kind of you know period between the late eighties and early nineties like for you because it's kind of well, interesting twist, well, twist were going for me personally I was I got myself. I got my act together as a photographer. I'd gone to London. I joined. I worked with a guy called Paul Ryder, photog- music photographer, and we'd worked for did a lot for Smash Hits and a lot for the kind of big rock papers, Q, and those kind of magazines. And Paul 
I was his assistant and I learned a lot from him about how to run a business and how to be be a photographer. And a photographer is not just about taking photos. Um, there's a lot of running around that goes on planning. So that time as World of Twist Part 2 got underway, they brilliantly let me do most of their photography. Uh, I never mad on their front cover of the album, but I, it was too much like it. We just never got it. We just didn't hit it home, but we did some amazing pictures around that time. Um, and then I worked with Interstellar, who also were in Manchester, who were, were, had formed out of Laugh, who was yes. um, And I worked with a band called If. And then I ended up doing things like Supergrass. I did an Oasis shoot uh, very early on when they were starting, uh, when they were the first ever Oasis shoot, I think. Prodigy, um, a lot of DJs. And I just worked pretty much every day. I was practically in Boyzone in East 17. I spent so much time with them. And I did a lot of um, I did a lot of music photography a, as a job, and it works, you know. And, and we had children and, and all the rest of it. So did so, you just? Yeah, did, I was did, busy. Did, I was very busy. Did you do Quality Street by World of Twist? Was that yes. yours? Right. Yeah. And, and I'm never crazy about that. We went anyway. We shot it, and it's what it is. And, and it, I look back fondly at that day. It was a really good day out. I did all the photography for that. And the inside sleeve is my favourite picture I've ever taken which is called The Scene, and it's this group of them with motorcycles and like by some garage doors. That's my favourite shot. So I was a photographer, but then... So as World of Twist was kind of crumbling, they asked me to... Tony and Nick and Gordon were like, come on, get back in, Jim. And I, and I, I remember Nick going, oh, you've got, you've got your life all sorted out. You don't need us to fuck it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... That was never going to be the case because they were my, my friends, but... I think what they meant, there's nothing that helps bring life into focus more than having some kill- children. So around between uh, Well, the Twist and, and Earl Bruce, I became a dad, me and Jude had kids. And um, there's nothing like that bringing focus into where am I going and what am I doing. So I became a grafter in terms of photography and I, and it worked. And I did, re- I had a great life taking pictures and running around, um, taking photos and traveling quite a lot. And then we were sitting in a beer garden bun if it fell apart and um, World of Twist had fell apart pretty much, and we sat in a beer garden in St. John's Wood, a really hot night, and I think it was probably Rob, I think Rob said something along this, instead of just sitting in a pub, why don't we get a crate of beer and go to my mate's recording studio? So we went to this place at the Rainbow Theatre um, with a guy called Haley. It was, it was more than a four-track, and he had a little computer hooked up to it, and we made Life's Too Long. We recorded it and we made Life's Too Long and it was just done as a kind of uh, something to do. But Rob said to me, I remember Rob said, make sure we all get some cassettes of it. And I sent Rob a cassette and a week later he rang me up and he just said, this is just fucking brilliant. And Rob had been in F and he'd done, you know, they'd all had World of Twist in a parallel time and got a record deal. And of course they get dropped and they just get bounced around by that kind of end of the music. And everyone's a little bit jaded and uh, exhausted by it all, I would imagine. But then, of course, we it all got rejuvenated with Earl, Bru- Earl Brutus. And pretty much straight away, Rob knew Sean McCluskey, who got us a gig at the... Um, our first ever gig was at Café de Paris. We did one song at this rave, which was right. hilarious, terrifying and, and hilarious. And I'd been working with uh, Saint-Étienne. I knew through World of Twist I'd met Saint-Étienne, and I was shooting stuff for their second album, uh, the book. They had a CD booklet, and we did this thing about, strangely, it was about kids hanging around, and I'd take photos of teenagers smoking the kebabs outside school with a long lens. 
I mean, you wouldn't get away with that now. I mean, the, the intention was perfectly legit, but there was no way you hang around school taking photos of 15-year-old school kids. Wow. But anyway, it's called So Tough, and it was just in a in a booklet for... Um, and I dropped them a cassette off, Bob and Pete, a cassette off. I used to go around to their flat in Tufnell Park. And again, they say, I remember them saying, we're not going to play it in front of you because we don't want to embarrass you. And they, of course, had a record label. And it wasn't really couching, saying, can we put this on your label? But, but we were chatting. And, the, and, of course, Bob and Pete and Sarah have always been incredibly um, like a transmitter, um, but like a receiver. They're fascinated by what's going on around them. And you can hear that in their songs, but they were fascinated by the people they know and and what we're up to. And of course, Bob just said, it's just brilliant, the track. I saw you last night, I want to put the record out. So we had a record out within space of about, I don't know, we got one song, got two <laughs> songs. We needed a B-side, go back to your B-side, Tony. Yes. Um, and after that, it just, after that, things picked up momentum. Steve Lamack got hold of it and he was connected to his partner was pr- a press officer for E17. So I'd work with E17. As I say, I was a pop photographer. I was out every weekend doing gigs. We were in Bournemouth after some big show, at the big East End, East 17 show. And we're in this hotel bar and it was a hot night again. And he was, and she says, oh, Steve keeps playing this track by this band called Earl Brutus. He carries it around with him. He's, he's obsessed. And I'm going, you're choking or you're taking the piss. And she says, why would I? I said, because it's our band. We've got, it's our band. And she goes, have you got a record deal? This is Friday night. Have you got a record deal? I said, no. And she says, well, you'll have one by Monday morning. And sure enough, Monday, 10 a.m., the phone rings. Can you come and see us? And we all went down to meet Steve and his, and his wingman, Tony Smith. And we sat there and we just had this conversation. And suddenly we're making an album. And it was, it was an, I, I was thinking I'll take two weeks off from the photography to make a record. Six months later, we're still mixing it and obsessed, and it becomes an obsession, and it becomes something we're completely and utterly obsessed with. And it became Your Majesty, We Are Here, which is the first Bill Brutus album. Yes, and that that sort of captures a certain zeitgeist, doesn't it? At this stage, I mean, it does seem to. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of bands around at that time. Like, were Gallon Drunk going at that point? You know, those sort of bands. I think so. I mean, I we did that thing. I, I and I agree wholly with this. I love my probably my definition of the greatest band is Dex's Midnight Runners, and I love the fact that Old Brutus was a war a law unto itself. And it was like, we don't mix with other bands. <laughs> and of course we did, really. We were nice, very nice, friendly people, all of us. You know, everyone in the band like was a social animal, you know, and, and we loved the people. But of course, the, the old British wall would come up. And, and because of that, I think it made our band a bit more exciting. So, so yeah, but yeah, there will have been Gallandrum. I don't know, we didn't really... We didn't really segue in a scene with any other band in the not in the same way that say well the Twist and Interstellar were equals and they were and they would both well they were both managed by the same team but they would both kind of mix and drink together. We never really had any band that we wanted, but then a lot with them. But then we were very lucky because Nick had played with the Mary Chain, and and they became obsessed. You know, Jim and William, all they ever did was say great things about us. And supporters, and, and they supported us. Let's use their studio, their work with their engineer Dick, and um, and of course Saint Etienne were very supportive as well. So, so it was never a case of the. We just, I suppose, one of our 
one of our, our our family band would have been the Parkinsons um, because Nick they worked with a Mary Jane and we knew Al uh, Alfonso and Victor and we like we like them as well but we didn't really mix with other groups we were a bit kind of um, a bit up our own arse yes well it does in I guess right, it does. in all for all the right reasons you know all the, in the right places but yeah. I suppose as a fan you always think that everybody lives on you know there's going to be I don't know, in, you know, Britpop the musical one day, you know, with all these people who are sort of walking in and out, you know. I'm going to nick from, uh, I saw Will Sargent do a talk about his book on the Bunnymen, and the Bunnymen are a band I, I really love. And Will Sargent was talking, and I I'm, I should have, I, I could have just nicked this line, but he just said, uh, Liverpool wasn't like Laurel Canyon. Everybody <laughs> fucking hated each other. And they were all out to get each other and bring each other. The, the competitive spirit around Eric's, Around the bunny men and teardrops and wahi and, and, and all the yeah and all that that he said he said it wasn't like fucking Laurel Canyon <laughs> and I and um no we were never at war we were never at war with um of any uh, with any group and uh but we kind of lived in our own bubble um you know we didn't and and I think I think you can hear that in the music I don't think that we we didn't aspire to be we didn't look at another band for example and go God they're really big. Let's be more like them. Like let's be like Pulp or Oasis or you know Britpop, but Brit Awards sort of bands that were at the time. You know the those kind of bands that would go and win a Brit Award. Or we didn't look at the Manic. We loved the Manics and we loved them. I used to play Supergrass all the time, even though I didn't. I did record covers for Supergrass, but I loved Supergrass as a band. I think their drummer and their, and their lyrics and their, and I think that as a band, they're just a fierce commodity. You know, really fierce group of people. And um, sorry, no, they're not fierce at all in. Uh, they they had I I think that they um, were a really very good group, but we didn't want to be like them. We didn't sit there and say, "Well, let's copy that or do this." We yes. listened to a lot of old glam. We listened to a lot of. We used to love listening to Bruce Springsteen. I think if thought if there'd been a third old Brutus album, it would have sounded like Born in the USA. The track Born in the USA, just right. drum beat, one drum beat, and and just a riff and someone shouting. Because on your second album, there's Straight a track down called, the sound, you know. Because your second album has got a track called Second Class World. And, and Second I, Class I, War. Second Class War. Was it, well, yes. And that yeah. does, oh yeah, War, not World. It does sound like Crazy Horses. They does, there's a moment, isn't there, in that which sounds a bit like. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Alice Cooper crops up on Navy Head, doesn't he? I can admit that now. But I mean, yeah, because, and again, I think as a group, we always, we, our influences were clearly um, in 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 open view. You know, we wore our influences brightly. Um, you yes. can craft work. You can hear Alice Cooper, Hawkwind. There's you know, of course Hawkwind. Um, you can hear that uh, we got. You know, we listen to a lot. I think we're probably listening to Hello quite a lot. Glam, glam rock. You know what? What now would be called um, junk shop glam. We would always listen. I knew a lot of those tracks anyway. Um, and we love the glitter sound, you know, the, we love the Mike Leander sound. It was just, it, it was, and I, and then of course you throw these things up together and people think you sound like the fall, which, I mean, people have compared us with the glitter band, the fall. Um, they've, they've aligned us with KLF and this kind of situationist sort of thing. So we must be doing something right. Yes, because 
Because most you know, bands, are, uh, I was going to say, most bands that I've interviewed, they do have that kind of fi- a five-year narrative, you know, which is because they're kind of twenty-four-seven most of the time. They, you know, they get together, rehearse mm-hmm. like hell. They get the single. John Peel plays it. Get the John Peel session. Then the first album things going quite well. Second album a bit tricky, yeah. and then the I mean, third. Yeah, album. Right. Our first album got us, you know, got us a bit of attention. The second one was a. Well, then we've gone on to a substitute Island Records. So we had suddenly there was. Initially, there was more money marketing, but it didn't come about at that point, you know. Uh, but we had not, we got got to shoot an album cover we really loved and things like that, you know, the two cars and um, with Scott King art directing. So, so, so we had we we're on a slightly bigger label, but it didn't it didn't feel like it. We were, yeah. I don't think I personally. I, I mean, obviously, it would have been hilarious if we'd had a hit record. It would have been, you know, and we'd gone into the sort of Saturday morning television top of the pops kind of thing but at the same time uh, the being a lawyer unto ourselves was much more important than that and that's why i think we look back at little british now with fondness because it was a law unto itself it was we didn't there was no careering involved really i don't feel like we were we're not we weren't searching to have hits records and you again you've got to remember that i suppose in then that, that point period in the 90s we had been exposed to and witnessed and watched um, a, a number of people in bands and who had their thing, who were, but this, that point out were quite burnt out and quite hollowed out. Um, you know, sort of refugees from the eighties, really. I don't mean that. Uh, I mean that they, they, they had their, you know, they weren't in the best, they weren't in their most healthy state at that point. So having a hit record doesn't necessarily make you a happy, happy bunny. <laughs> You know, you know, look at you know, you look at I look at some people and think, fucking hell, that must be terrible the way you're feeling right now. So maybe I was and we were older, you know, we were a bit older now, you know. World of Twisted nearly they've got the fingers burned. And the, and several other people we knew. So by by then it was sort of well, maybe we should just avoid that. Maybe we should just make records we like. And I, I remember Rob saying that, and, and I think he was right. And, you know, let's make music that we actually like that we can stand up and play 20 years later. And we can do that. I play our records and I think they're really good. Yeah. You know. I think with with a few bands who get that money or kind of they think they've got the money and then when the, you know, and it's just a blur and then it finishes and they kind of recover, you know, and then they sober up a bit and then go, well, where's all the money? And it's like, well, there's none. There's never that, any money in your anyway, so, so it didn't matter. But. So, so you, it was kind of lucky, whereas a lot of people went, well, we had a number one, we had this, we had that, we had the world tour, so where's the money? It's like, well, there's no money. You know, you're, you're minus money still, so you're going to be... Yeah, even if you... Even any any amount of success probably has to follow a period. It's the same in football teams. You know, they win in Europe, and generally speaking, they fall apart. Of it. Like Liverpool have been doing it recently. And and, like, and I think that any, any successes like that, probably, there's a fallout after it. Um, and that must hurt, but I mean that doesn't mean. But I, th- I think the problem uh, with World of Twist, I thought it was really sad that, that they they felt they failed, you know, Tony and Gordon, and and t- and they took it badly, and they're both sensitive souls, you know, and, and um, they thought they did fail, they thought they'd let everybody down, and they hadn't, they hadn't failed, they'd just been on a bit of a journey, and and it didn't maybe turn out the way you imagined it to be, but nobody really knew what it was going to be like anyway. But they certainly hadn't let. They hadn't certainly hadn't failed. They've been on a weird adventure, but it doesn't the conclusion isn't always Las Vegas, or you know, and maybe maybe you don't want that. But um, so with Earl Brutus, the I think we were a bit more um, recession proof. 
or, you know, failure proof because people that we were grown up would seen things in a different way. Um, we'd seen, I'd watched other bands I'd photographed, disp- you know, disperse. I was, I may have not been in many bands, but I understand the dynamic of a band. I think I was kind of quite well equipped to, to understand that dynamic. And, and I think that, um, you know, Rob had been in Joe boxers. He'd been in Subway sex. Um, and then he'd been in if and, and Gordon and Tony, uh, Gordon and Nick had been in World of Twist. Nick had been in DVA. They'd already been in this scenario where, so we were quite, we were, the band, Earl Brutus, was very lucky to have that kind of level of experience on it. And it made us a bit more resilient, I think. And and it's also, it wasn't about having a hit record. But I should add that we had a, our single seat Exodus went to Christmas number one and the indie charts. But I think it was because, uh, I mean, it, according to the chart, we were outselling Oasis at the time. And I think they just needed a Christmas record in the indie chart. So they shoved us at number one. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find it on YouTube. So the, we had, we had, but we, my idea, my definition of successful or Brutus, and I still think this to this day, is the fact that Alan Vega recorded a version of On Me Not In Me in New York. And I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. You know, the idea of Alan Vega from Suicide being connected to our group is just fucking unbelievably brilliant. Sorry, can I swear? Yes, um, that's fine. Yeah, it was just it's just a great moment in time and it's nothing to do with money or or um success or failure. It's just a thing. It's a great piece of art. And you know, show me another band that has that kind of you know. I, I, it, the circle is complete when things like that happen. You know, when you know those kind of people are involved. Yes, absolutely. So, when the band finishes, when do you then go back to your photography? And um, I always but, was taking photos, but even though because the first album was made in, was we programmed it up in. A, I had a photographic studio in Kilburn, and there was a little room off it, and we set the band up in there. So that that was the first one. The second, yeah, and then. After the band, the band then the band never officially split up. It's it fell apart. Rob left um, after the second album, uh, and we regrouped with Martin Wright, who was from If, uh, from Laugh. So, sorry, from Laugh. You know, one of the C eighty six boys. Yeah. And we, um, Martin was a really old friend of ours. We knew him for a long time ago. So we he got in, and we had some gigs to do, and then we did a, recorded another single. And then after that, it went all a bit, it got a bit laid back. I think Gordon and um, Nick both had children. Um, and also, but it was never over. I think we were a bit exhausted by it all. And if I'm being honest, we drank a lot. We drank and drank and drank. And that, and we, we all became a bit jaded because of that and through our own doing. So it was time to kick back. And yeah, I, I decided to go and do an art degree at Croydon College. So I went and did fine art. And during it, I was a photographer. And this is where I got more engaged with digital photography. I was 39 and I got, and I got, um, I went and did an art degree. And uh, so I really enjoyed that. I'd never, I left school, as I say, 16. I'm not, I was not really interested in being an academic. And I sailed through this, this degree. I did really, I kind of, got good marks and and, wrote, <laughs> and became I was no longer dis, you know you know I, I became a lot more articulate and uh, and I create and I became more fascinated in other people's work people and at the time the Tate Modern had opened that just owned um 
And Wolfgang Tillmans, Tillmans had just won the Turner Prize. This was the time around Tracy Emin. And, the, and you know, it was an exciting time to be sort of paying attention to that area. And we did gigs during that time. You know, we did some gigs. We played the ICA and we we got offered quite interesting gigs around this time. We didn't really do gigs for, we dropped the toilet circuit, you know, the kind of road menders in Northampton and, and the, you know, all those kind of clubs and places old Brutus had played. This time we got offered sort of weird art happenings including a very famous or very infamous gig at the Industrial uh, Austrian um, Cultural Institute where we let all these pyrotechnics off and they thought it was a terrorist attack. <laughs> and, then, you know, the gigs got stranger and there would be people turning up in deck chairs, artists doing installations while we were on stage, uh, gigs, and the gigs got a lot more. There was no... There was no per- it, it was a very good time for the band because there was no purpose to it. There was no nothing to promote. But it was the sake of it. And, of course, I'm at art college, so I'm lapping all this up. I'm loving all this. Yeah. We, you know, we played, we played some very interesting gigs, but they weren't. it, it wasn't about shifting units. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It was about just doing it for the sake of it, and that was a great time for the band. But it was, it was few and far between. Because I remember a few decades ago, or a decade, I guess, probably, it must have been around. I did interview your brother, Martin. Yeah. He was kind of, you know, doing the album. You know, he was in Norwich doing the album. And um, yeah. and it sounded all a bit like, blimey, what happens next? You get the gold lame suit back well, it's on. It's hard. No, it's hard. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I think that, you know, my brother and and, and other people I've, I've kind of met in that, from that era, in that era, they work fucking hard, you know? You know they work they 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 work hard, but then again, I I, I suppose a lot of people don't know how to jump shit and do something different because it, it becomes so much part of their lives. That you know I'm not I can't, I'm not speaking for my brother or anyone else. I don't I don't really see my brother anymore. I've not I've not I've not really had a long chat with him for years. But um, he, he used to love Earl Brutus though. He was he was very much he really got got behind us. Um, but I know that it must become something you just can't escape. Yes, I was my I was my John Fox. You know, John Fox became head of fine art at Leeds Art School. You know, so he did these. He was in Ultravox. He made all these interesting records. He had a solo career. He had a recording studio, and then now he's working in in the or he was working in fine art. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what he did. And I thought that's brilliant. What a great thing to do. What a great life that is. Yeah, great. You know, I'm not I'm not interested in his CV, but what a great. You look back at that kind of timeline and think. And then I loved it when I found I'm a picture editor. I went from photography to picture editing, and and I heard that how Devoto was a, a a film and picture archivist, and I thought that well, that's really where these great smart people go, you know. Yes. And well, that, was, you know, I I can remember your brother saying that they need to have a retirement home just for people who were ex kind of pop stars because they're, the <laughs> they're the only people who could understand what it was like i must admit well, that, yeah no that, i mean i think that because i remember uh, well you know martin just refer used to refer to it as his job and uh, i don't really I'm, I'm not really in sync with that kind of way of thinking but this goes on to if you want to talk about the book now this yes is a, let's talk man. about the book <laughs> no no because that in Gordon's book, a long time ago, I never knew Gordon was going to write a book, but there's this whole story, if you, I don't know if you remember, where me, Tony, and Gordon, and Andy Hobson are all at this holiday camp watching a 60s weekender. And it was after World of Twisted fell apart, and we, but we had a right laugh. 
and we went around and we went to see the love affair that was it because we love the love affair and the yes. love to be like love affair and we met love affair in a in a chalet they had a party and we went around to their chalet and, and gordon's trying to play them rare b-side love affair tracks and they're going these lies go have you got any fucking suede have you got any suede put some suede on we don't like this music and it was like you know it's love affair and then we we openly laughed that weekend about the idea of Phil Oakey's Human League and, you know, um, Dave Balfe's Teardrop Explodes too. you know, like Slade and all these bands. And we, th- it was a fantasy that, that a band would ever do Gone Revival. You know, the idea of Carol Decker's... Carol Decker's to power. I mean, Jesus Christ. Anyway, we joked about that. And then we, I remember the revival thing started to kick in and myself and Nick had a conversation about how there should be some form of um, institution where you go and you check if you're allowed to go on some kind of revival trail, you know, if you, if you're suitable, a bit like a um, old man having to old man or woman having to retake their driving test Mm. to check and see properly and their reactions are good enough to drive a car and the idea would be that Tapau or or Toya, or you know that, you know the bloke with the clown in his mental chains, you know those sort of people. Oh, Howard Jones. Yeah, Howard Jones and his clown would have to go and go forward and retake their driving test in pop. Yes. And of course, and this is where the idea for the book came. It was this idea that that you should have a, maybe you should you should be tested. So I created a series of chapters and questions and i also had read a book called um how to give up smoking by alan carr not the alan carr and you have to read when you read the book and it works i gave up smoking and uh, when you read the book you have you're not allowed to stop smoking until the end of the book but during the book they tell you how disgusting it is and there's all this tar in your lungs and by the end of the book you don't really don't you don't want that it makes you have a last cigarette it's very clever very silly so I'd read this book. So I wanted to make a book about bands that was like that, using photography, using some of my photography and the photography that fired me up, the bands, the Ziggies and Mick Rock and all those kind of people you love and the New York Dolls and these album covers I loved. And um, so I built this kind of idea about it and the end where you have to apply for a licence to be in a band, um, which, of course, is absurd. And anybody who thinks you need a licence to be in a band shouldn't really be in a band in the first place. And, of course, it became a vehicle for the way I grew up, you know, the music you listen to, the Alice Coopers and the Sweet and, and the Hot Chocolate and the Boxy Music, and it became a vehicle for all of that. And it, and it was great. So it came out, and I put out 80 copies of it, and it went. And then so that's really where it came from, this idea of, of kind of – and it is like um, if I ever make any money from the book um, and have a hugely successful bestseller, I'll open that old people's home and I'll put all those people in it. So they don't have to go on tour anymore. Yes, uh, you know. They can... I, th- I think it was also that you would be with people who understood what it was like going through that process of being elevated and then completely dropped. Yeah, I mean, I'm, then... I, could, I could I could offer no help in that in that respect to those people, not even my own flesh and blood, because it's just I don't, not that I think my brother would want any advice from me, <laughs> but um, but just that uh, you know, I mean, yeah, fair enough, but you know. What's the Morris? What's the Smith song called? You know, you could have said no if you wanted to. You know, oh, paint, a, yes. paint a vulgar picture. You could have said no if you wanted to. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of ways to step off the step off the gas and do something else. 
isn't there? Yes. It's not all. It's not all Buddhism and Betty Ford clinics. You know, it's there's plenty of things you could do because they, those people have clearly got a, an, or had a creative mind. Yes, and probably still got one deep down there and, and under the floorboards. You know, they need to dig it out a bit, don't they? Because well, well, I think it's probably not creative. It's the book not, it's probably not the creative mind. It's probably more the ego sort of wanting to... Because I remember one person from, I don't know, Jim from Carter saying, you know, he'd like to play the odd gig, you know, just to get out of your system once a year, but he doesn't want to play in front of 20 people at the local library. He still wants to go out and do a big gig once a year. I, I remember being deeply offended that that um, somebody suggested that we were like Carter and the <laughs> sex machine. So if they never do another gig again, it wouldn't bother me. No, but, no. And, and, I, and I, I deeply, obviously, the, the things have hurt over the years. And, and one of them, uh, losing, not having Tony around is one of them, and not having Nick around as well. It's huge and massive gap in um, for, for my our group of friends and family. And it'll never be fully healed. Um, but uh, I'd like to think if if... If Nick was alive and Earl Brutus were talking, were encouraged to go, do something new, um, do do another gig, we would take some new songs along, yes. and a new Earl Brutus with it. Because we, you know, the other thing that I don't get about these the revival thing is most of these people come from the Church of Bowie, of uh, the the Bowie, and or if not the Church of John Lennon. And John, both Bowie and John Lennon, morphed very quickly into new things and new experiments. And yes, go on stage and, and do your thing, but don't you don't need to do the thing you were doing in 1983. You know, I mean, Banana Armour were all right, you know, in a kind of drunken party thing. But I mean, God forbid if you had to sit through a whole set of their music. I mean, it's you know, yes, it's pure. It's nostalgia, isn't it? And, it, and it's nostalgia for an age. That I love the Buzzcocks. The nostalgia for an age to come, but but. Um, I mean, so I get the bit where you probably are the. But I don't personally, as a sixty-one-year-old, I don't think that the best work is behind me, and I don't think, and I think there's a future out there, and a lot of interesting things are going to happen, and good ones as well. And and you do that by trying to do different things and and mix mix with different people, or whatever. If you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. I like, but music was always very progressive, wasn't it? Like, but the bowiness of it all, and the adventure, the journey you're being taken on. Um, Well, well, I I suppose with Bowie, I mean, yeah, just as a sort of, uh, I mean, in the 70s, he did 10 albums in 10 years and he he produced, you know, Lust for Life, Transform, he did several world tours, got married, got divorced. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and did several films. So he was kind of busy. He didn't hang about and he was always recreating a new band. But even in the 80s, he he went to, in the 80s, which was not a great period of, um, you know, for me, I wasn't, I didn't like, that let's dance that much. I didn't think it was a really my kind of Bowie, my kind of Bowie. And, um, uh, uh, you know, but then again, in, in the nineties, you start getting things like Heathen and, uh, you know, I'm afraid of Americans and, and the, he took you on a journey and it, and it ended up in a wonderful place. You know, the last, uh, the next day and, and black star, you know, incredible re- records really. And the, you know, but, as, but what I mean is, that you don't anyone in any other life you would you would have to evolve you you if you worked in a um a office or something you would look for new roles in that place and you would look for new opportunities or you would change your habits at the weekend and and do different things and i don't, I don't know hanging on like that is but then again it's it's not 
it's been encouraged, hasn't it? I mean, that that era, the 80s, the 70s, the 80s, now the 90s. I mean, people just seem to want more of it. And there's, you know, there's new stuff out there. I mean, my favourite revi- revival band, the Kraftwerk, right. you know, I've been to see them 10 times and it, the set hasn't changed. And the, the, probably the people behind the computers have changed without me even realising. <laughs> but the, the set, and but I get a real buzz off it. And I like taking, I took my son to see it twice. And I like, you know, you like, you know, and I just think that um, Kraftwerk, but they're a revival act, so I'm, I can hardly point the finger. But um, I just think, I just can't, I wonder how you bored you must be getting. How, how many times do you need to sing Like a Virgin or, you know, by, you know, like Madonna when she goes on tour? Um, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to see things evolve a bit because I think the people behind them are probably quite smart people. And, and I think they, you know, they had the imagination to do it in the first place, so surely they can do it now, you know. Um, yes. But I don't, you know, it's not for me to say how people earn a living. No, I think. But... I think the other thing is, I think it's. I think it probably is very addictive. Yeah, and I think it's an addictive thing to go on stage and have people cheering at you. And who can blame you know? And yes, get the the the, the gold lame back out. But look, the book, the book. So you're, <laughs> it's not you're... just about the gold lame. I'm, I'm talking broadly. here. I'm not just picking on one particular um, pop group oh. or individual. <laughs> but. Um... But, but yes, the book. So how did you then, you had that idea you were saying about... Um, the license. Uh, yes, your, your six, your, your survival in a, in a sort of a holiday camp. And um, yeah. yeah, so then so then, how did you pull this book together and get the 11 chapters that you start with, Stance and Ego equals showing off, finishing with yeah. Yes, Smoking, and, and before that, Sport is for... So yeah, so how does this book work for those who are interested and are kind well, of curious? Well, what, so it came out. Um, we ran off. Uh, I ran off about hundred copies. Soft publishing is what you call it, don't you? And uh, and they went down quite well. I needed to. So I needed to run off copies of it because I needed to approach um, uh, literary agents and, and publishers. And it's not a sort of book that you would say. Um, you're not sort of what you say. I've sent you chapter one and two, and I'll send you chapter three and four next week. I needed to visually lay it out to explain uh, how, how how it was going to work. Um, so I ran off these copies, but then I started to sell them, and they got really good re- reactions from some quite nice people, people who I trust and, and like. And um, and people were very supportive of it and really got it. And then eventually it would all go quiet for a year. And eventually I, had, I, pa- I passed a PDF on to um, a guy called Andrew Hunt at Slim Volume, and he deals really in fine art books and, and kind of academic kind of fine art uh, on quite a, on a small scale, but, you know, he works, he's distributed through Corner House. Um, and he loved it and he loved it. And his knee-jerk reaction was really good. It made me laugh. But he then realised, he gave it the context. He said, look, we're in an age where people seek approval. And I wondered what he meant by that. And, and he's just, as it, of course, it becomes very clear very quickly. He said, people now can't bake a cake without asking Mary Berry if it's good enough, or they can't sing a song, uh, a cover version, unless Simon Cowell has said they've got a good voice. And we've now created, for, for um, unfortunately, a world where the, the media world where we seek approval and we seek, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to, uh, can I bake a cake? You know, what's it? Can I... Um, make a suit or can I throw some pottery down on a wheel? You know, everywhere you go, there's this kind of approval. And, it, you know, um, so he said this, the, that context is, it's more relevant now than it's ever been. 
So he, we went through the editing process. We wrote, rewrote some of it. Uh, Luke Keynes owned, um, did the outro. Bob Stanley did the intro. Both of them had got it and they loved it and they got the, they thought it was a really solid idea. Um, and then, uh, and then we got, we passed it around and Michael Bracewell has said a lovely thing about it on the back of the book. And he's a writer I really admire. Um, and suddenly it got traction, if you like, and he was going to we'll publish it. So we put it out and that's where we are today. Um, we've done events with questionnaires where people, instead of having a visitor's book in the gallery, you, you can write on the walls, on the questionnaire, we have these big AI elements. And some of the formula, some of the stuff people are writing is really hilarious. And so now at the stage where we're going to take that on tour and take those things out and do some book readings and do it. And then really it suddenly occurred to me that this, those questionnaires are being filled out publicly. And no one's, I don't know if anyone's sent one in yet, but, but, but we could actually build some kind of Frankenstein's monster of a group out of this using all the information and the ideas that people are putting forward and actually cobble together some kind of monster pop group or, or artist. And I think that will be the next stage, and I think that will be hilarious. I think it will be one of those things where you go, well, you created a monster, and now it's coming back to bite you. You know, <laughs> you know coming back to kill you. And it would be interesting to see what we can do with all the questionnaires. So it's an ongoing experiment in some respects. Yes. You must it love life, it. It's hopefully like great groups. It has a life of its own. That You know, it is that articulated lorry going down, the, going down with no brakes. Nobody knows what's going to happen next, you know. And did you, I mean, and pulling together the 11 chapters, it starts with the the famous industrialist. In Isambard King and Brunel, yeah. Yeah, so how did... He looked like one of the Ramones. And if you look at the, if you look at the way he stands, he could easily have been a Ramone. And also, if you unpack that picture, you look at what he's doing, he puts mud on his boots to tell us he's one of the, down with the, the workers, yet... He's got a top hat and a cigar, you know, and he's he he. You get the feeling he he was PR before really PR existed in that respect. Um, and the and the the you know we can we can unpack. I like I like it. I like. Yeah, I suppose I was talking to someone else about this the other day, and and when you write these books, you have to get, there has to be a voice in your head. You know, there's, it comes from somebody, a type of person, or and some of it, a lot of it was almost like a kind of angry Brian Sewell kind of art critic but instead of being given a Caravaggio to analyze or um a Titian or you know like some great work of art he's not you know he's been given the hot chocolate's greatest hits to analyze and he looks at it and he wonders why the Maltina is in the mouth and he <laughs> looks at two girls on the cover of Country Life lit by headlights coming out of the bushes and he wonders why and and I like giving um, those album covers, the same status that people give um, Guernica by Picasso, you know, and, yes. I think that, and, I, and, I, and that's not, I'm not taking the piss here or, or it's not, I'm not being cynical because record people have said this before. When you buy a record cover in the old days, particularly a 12 inch and particularly in those early years when we talked about at the beginning of this interview, you're buying art and it's, and it's art in your home. Diamond Dogs was a piece of art and and you absorbed it the way that other people talk about paintings. Most people can remember Picasso or Salvador Dali because it was outside the headmaster's office while you were going to go in and get reprimanded. Yes. <laughs> and you, would at, you would look at the kind of, uh, 
you know, I remember that being outside the headmaster's office and the headmistress's office at, um, at Bramall Comprehensive, and it was Guernica. And you used to stand there before you're going to go and get, like, put on report or something. And I love the... But at home, you would linger on on record covers. You'd look at Hawkwind's Space Ritual, or sometimes records that weren't very good, like Brain Salad Surgery by your people. You know, the album cover was brilliant. A personal favourite for me was um, um, Billion Dollar Babies by Alice Cooper. And I love these, and that idea that art is in the home through records. And I think the people, those practitioners in those days, the New York Dolls, and they knew that. They knew that when they're sending out that signal, we, people like you and me, are going to absorb that all that information. And I wanted to make that clear in the book. Um, and so it's treated in the same respect as fine art because pop music is the greatest art form of them all. And, it, and it, when it's done properly, when it's done in a, an exciting manner, and it, I don't have to like it, when people have the balls to do, or the gore to do something exciting with it, it's a wonderful thing. It's, yes. a wonderful, um, it's a beautiful thing, and we should remember that. You know, and I like that. It comes from the heart of the book. You know, there's, a, there's a kind of responsibility that comes with writing it, you know, that I'm proud of. Yes, absolutely. No, there's a lovely bit with... Caravaggio and David Bowie with you know with Mick Ronson, which is taken by Mick Rock, the photographer. When he's I tried to clear it, I tried to clear it with him, and um, um, and he died of during it. I was I was emailing him, and he never got back. And, and uh, so I want that. That's a tribute to him, really. But using it, and I love that picture. I think it's so important. It was such an exciting time. I love the front cover of Raw Power. Um, he's got silver trousers, and he's just diggy. And I remember Nick saying that he used to go into a record shop and look at it, and he, he was sort of frightened by it and intrigued by it. And there's what's is it called? A, it's being called a, a, objective, isn't it? Um, no, ab, objective isn't that the right term? Where you it's not a bit like seeing a car crash, but having to look. Yeah, you have to look, ab, and it's that's how horror films work. You look, you have to look at them, even though it's a repulsive thing. And great artists can do that. And Iggy is a great one. And of course, it's not about the good old days. I just consider myself very fortunate to be exposed to that kind of level of trash. <laughs> <laughs> on top of the pops, on the go whistle test, on record sleeves, and then musically, you know, the John Peel generation. And I find that um, I would, I, I hope um, another generation are getting as much out of it as I with their their music as as uh, their albums, their record covers, and their their music as I did out of mine, you know. Yes. So one chapter which is kind of interesting, your penultimate one, which is the one, sport is for cunts. So yes, yes I mean, so how did that get in there and and keep in there? <laughs> well, we all like a bit of sport, really. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not claiming. I just don't think the two really get on. Um, I think that, and I, I, as I mentioned in the book, you, it's usually somebody, you know, kind of charity football matches, and it's clearly a way of kind of bunking up your profile. You know, I mean, like, the idea, and also I just, I, I, all in my book, all the good, all the good things are bad things. Smoking. I mean, I was taught to smoke by David Bowie, and so is everyone else I know, you know, and, uh, because he did, and and then and like the idea of people just being gashed out on drugs, making music like the MC5 did or or the Stooges did, and let's face it, Bowie's best albums were when he was when he when he gave up drugs and got healthy. That's when the career took a bit worse, like musically. It's true. It's true. It is no, it is true. So, so 
the art or it's history in my head anyway you know like i mean uh so the idea of you know yes go out and get pissed and take a load of drugs and take smoke and then so sport doesn't really sit with that sport so so the idea was and, and there was a lot of sloganeering in um in my book you know it has big bold headlines and sport is for cunts is probably one of the best it's certainly the one that most people have said where can i buy a t-shirt with that on it um which <laughs> i've not i've not worked out my merch yet for the uh for the book but maybe i should sort that out um but so no but the, the idea the, the the kind of camaraderie that sport breeds is not the kind doesn't sit well with the egomaniac that makes great records <laughs> no, this is this is true. I guess I guess, I guess sport has. I, I feel well, like it's about bringing people together. Sport, pop music. You know, you don't want. You know, when I don't know, the lead singer of the Tubes gets out of there. You can't imagine him kicking a football around, can you? Maybe he can. You know, when yeah, Martin Degfield. I mean, the, I mean, I know he wore an American football gear, but he didn't wear it because he plays American football. <laughs> Yes, this is true. But then, you but then, but, kicking round a football, would you? But, but then, one of the biggest um, surprises when you find that Alice Cooper is very good at golf, and you think, yeah, yeah. Well, um, he, was, he was careering, wasn't he? He played golf with Bob Hope, didn't he? He um, probably did. But you realise his best work was not when he was playing golf. Yeah, but that was his shock tactic, wasn't it? You know that he played golf. That's how we we were shocked by him. You know, yes, you know, because we knew what he did for a living was being shocking so to unsh- to reverse shock is to go and play golf isn't it so when you but, when you saw alice cooper and um he was on i only saw him I, I saw him on telly i saw him i saw him in brighton about 10 years ago but wait, wait, but back in 73 was that when he had a sword and he went up to the woman in the audience and was yeah, yeah. Being yeah, quite so, yeah and the whole band and the band are up i mean the great thing about alice cooper band and they were a band alice cooper was a band wasn't it I mean, he he's not the best-looking fella, but he looks incredibly handsome against arguably the ugliest people. <laughs> and this is the other great thing about this era. You know, these bands, glam bands, were usually quite ugly, like hooligan ugliness, like Earl Brutus. You know, we were not a particularly good-looking group. But I love that, you know, that the ugly will rise <laughs> great rock and, and get into our minds. And I think, you know, again, it's a that's an incredibly democratic thing to happen. This is true. This is true. I just, don't, I just don't think. I think that um, when people get on stage, and this is Earl Brutus, I think, a great example, and the pre new, we have a duty to entertain, and World of Twist did that very well. And I and I like to see. And when I say entertain, it doesn't all have to be glitter and and costume changes, and makeup, you know. But you've got to go in there with some kind of front. The Manics do it very well, I think. They always have done. Manics, with or without Richie, they had an enormous amount of front. Dexies. Midnight Runners are my favourite example of that. Um, and they came from the school of Roxy Music, I think. And um, and I think that it's great when somebody has front an attitude. And don't forget the book is about an inventory of attitude. Um, and and it's like when I see Porter's Head, the, the Beth Gibbon, you know, she comes on in an anorak, stands there, and she's got attitude and she's got spirit about her. And something that takes you somewhere. She doesn't need to do the full Kate Bush costume change thing or anything like that. But she really did. She really needs to, um, you know, she really has presence. And that's what I mean. And I, I just think it's a bit, um, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think the 1975 have got something about them, haven't they? They've, they're up for a bit of a, it's not just spans from 1974 to 1978, you know, that no. I'm talking about. 
but that was my that's when those that world really um, imprinted on me so i'm bound you know, i'm bound to talk about that era um, that's when it really got inside my head that kind of stuff but um so it's about attitude really yeah and uh, and, uh, and i think all again when we're talking about the 19 80s old people's home um those groups all had real front when they went out there and i think if you haven't got the attitude you're not really it doesn't have the same bite for me it's just the songs it's jukebox and it's and they're great songs and and then again if it make people happy and you walk away with 20 grand you know why don't why would anyone listen to me anyway it doesn't you know and, and i don't expect them to but. i think i think with that period though is often you know when you have that creative brilliance it's what just when the stars just seem to line up just for a moment and it, it is a flash isn't it that those some of those best songs are written in a very short period of time people but they represent a short period of time as well don't they they represent that and that's where the revival thing works isn't it because you that's this is the oh i remember that record when i first met you and this album came out our first shag and and then we had our baby we walked down the aisle to this and then we we had a baby and that one was and that's what they represent don't they you know and yes. i get that i mean i think that's perfectly rational well, I think then everyone gets on with their life and they 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 hop around the office, you know. Well, they don't maybe do. buy as many records to just listen to. Yeah, them. but I think they they kind of have a break and they do the children, and then when they finish with the children, they're back together on their own, like some sort of funny old couple. They go, "Oh, we'd like to go out again," and, it's like, and we we oh look, the ocean color scene are playing. They go, "Oh, that's nice, dear. Let's go and see the ocean color scene," and off they go, don't they? And they get their ticket and they get their ticket. Yeah. And it's like they feel, you know, as long as they can sit down occasionally during the gig, they'll they'll just about get there for the encore. Yeah, I mean, it's not... Come, I suppose it's better than it's about. It's a, probably a bit like playing golf, isn't it? Really, um, it doesn't. You know, it's neither wrong nor right. I don't. No, I, I, no I'm not there to criticise that. I'd like to see, but I, I like the evolution in in pop music. It's the exciting part, and it's a bit like the the old maxim. You know, the journey's much more exciting than the destination. Or it certainly was in a group like Old Brutus. It was about going there and doing it was the exciting part. It wasn't about, oh, that was the... And then we we made that album that sold, you know, two million copies or something. I don't think... I think that... Not that... Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that um, we would uh, have necessarily got a great deal out of that particular part of it, apart from a bungalow each. No, it's a tax one and a massive cocaine addiction. No. I, like, I like that. I like the idea of the journey rather than the destination. The journey, not... yeah, they're two different things, aren't they? And, and... Well, yes, because often, well, it's the age of experimentation, isn't it? In the age of that's what they always say about great or fine art when you when you create a piece of work, uh, you're when you're marked, you people, you, you know, before when you go to art college, you realize people can mark your work and they can. Put a, put a ticket on it, you know, put a number on it, and I never understood that at first. But of course, the reality is that you could, you could, your art could be sticking a piece of blue tack to a wall, like Martin Creed did. I think it was, but it's the notebook that that's that high, you know, that's like it's New York telephone directory of bits of information that you get, you arrive at where you get to the point where you get to this level of minimalism, where you put a piece of blue tack on a wall and. And the journey is much more exciting than the, the end piece of work. And why you would do why you would do it is much more exciting than it doing it. If you see what I mean, yes. and that is, that is the that is where the revival circuit is a bit is a, is not that exciting for someone like myself because the half the watching a band 
uh, form in public and evolve in public is a really a mutate into something is great. A band like Soft Cell, for example, you know, listen to the mutant moments, the girl with the painted leather face. And then you arrive at much later, um, an orchestrated version of a Mark Holman singing over, you know, but the, the journey, what took them from that point to that is a really exciting thing. Um, you know, hearing soft, hearing Tainted Love over and over again on the radios is, is, is just not going to change anything, you know. No, this is true. So do it, just last question. If you, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there any kind of top tips, word of wisdom that you would have gone, yeah, God, I would have definitely whispered that, even if they ignored you? Thing is, and this sounds very arrogant, I can't, I kind of like who I am. <laughs> and I, and I, I like the way things have turned out. And I didn't, I didn't have a shit childhood or a miserable time. And my folks really made sure things were good. Um, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I don't mean we weren't spoiled or anything. It was just all very ordinary. But all my 16-year-old self? No, not really. I tried yeah. sniffing blue once and I got a headache. And uh, I'm good. But, I mean, your instinct tells you to do things and not do things. And there was nothing I – oh, no, I know what it is. I should have gone to see Joy Division with Gordon. I, I didn't go. And uh, I really should have gone to see Joy Division. Yes. That's the only thing that I would change. You would have told you. See them in their prime. You know, that would have been a wonderful thing. A moment. Yes. Well, look, James, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. If you want, I can always send you the link if you want to hear it and um, put it yeah, up yeah. There on your social media platform sites. But this is great. And thank you ever so much. You know, well, and, can, uh, yeah, can, can we push the book a little bit? I want it to be. Yes. Um, you can buy it on my website, jamesfryimage.com. Yeah. It's in the shop in the, on my website. And the other thing that's quite exciting is that. Um, on Friday the 27th, is it? 26th? This Friday, 12 o'clock, I've got a two-hour radio show on Boogaloo Radio. Good. Excellent. And we need, we need people to listen to it and phone in. Yes. So are you, do, are you doing this live? It'll be live, yeah. Excellent. On Boogaloo Radio. And I don't know how to work the equipment yet. So I know what I'm going to play. But uh, I've got a good solid. But we'll we'll take some requests if we get, if anyone can get in touch or comments. Twelve o'clock. Yeah. So twelve o'clock. Boogaloo Radio on Friday. The every Friday. Anyway, every Friday. every Friday for the 2023. For the foreseeable future. Yes. Okay. Well, that's great. But I will push the book and I will put a link as well for people to hear. Yes. Yeah, so right. Send them to jamesfryimage.com. Thanks very much. Nice to meet you, David. Yeah, take care. Thanks, James. Have a great day. Keep warm. And you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with James Fry talking about his life in music, photography, and also his latest book, which is just out. I will give you the link for that. This has been The C86 Show, David Esau. I probably repeated that. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, especially the latter. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.